welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Thanks for joining us in our Great Communicator series, where we talk with some of the top church leaders in the country about how to be effective preachers and teachers. This week, we're hearing from Dr. Ralph Douglas West. Ralph is the founder and senior pastor of the Church Without Walls in Houston, Texas. The church began with 32 members and now serves 24,000 plus, meeting in three locations and conducting six services each Sunday. Ralph completed degrees at Bishop College, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Beeson Divinity School, where he received a Doctor of Ministry degree. He has an abiding commitment to the church and the academy and speaks often at colleges, universities, and seminaries. But now first, let's hear from Ed Stetzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and Executive Director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. We are here with PASS, that's what folks call you, but uh, Ralph West, and we're so thankful for being able to have this conversation. I want you to talk to us about the beginning of your ministry years. I've read you began preaching at 16 years of age. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Um, 47 years ago. I celebrated Mm -hmm. 47 years ago, uh, the second weekend of August. And uh, just since the call, I'm not out of a preaching tradition in terms of being a uh, fourth or third or second generation preacher. Uh, but I sensed uh, as a teenager that God was calling me to preach. My sainted mother, who is a blessed memory now, helped me understand that, <clears throat> of what that meant. And uh, I can remember the day that I made a telephone call to my pastor and told him I really feel a call to preach. And 47 years ago, things were quite different. He said, uh, announce your call into the congregation on Sunday. And then when I finished, it was all of uh, 32 seconds. <laughs> and then uh, he said, Ralph will be preaching next Sunday night. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. I said, now, how do you do that? You know, but I did it. And uh, I can remember the sermon, the price that's paid for our soul. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body and with your spirit, which are God's. Yeah. Wow. Is that, now, again, 16 years of age, you're in uh, predominantly a historic African-American congregation. You're stepping into this role at 16. First of all, I'd love to know, I mean, if I preached at 16, it would have been a four-minute sermon because that's all I'd have to say. Uh, Is that a a common path decades ago to raise up preachers in that tradition? It is, yeah. 1975 was a blockbuster year in the city of Houston. It's a host of us that uh, started preaching at that time, still preaching. And I know most of the uh, guys that started preaching there. Fascinating. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about uh, 1970s preaching versus today, what are some things you've kept from your younger self preacher at 16 years of age uh, that you still see part of your preaching today? Yeah, so my first homiletical uh, exposure was from my pastor, O.C. Johnson Sr., who was uh, not a trained man, but a deep, deeply devoted person and uh, really, really worked hard at preaching. You remember the name Herschel Ford? He yeah, passed, sure. Yeah, and te- yeah. yeah. Uh, he preached along the lines of that, that kind of 
topical exposition. Yeah, those, 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 those outlines. That, I mean, I got the books. I still got the books. Right, yeah. So that was almost his method of preaching. Uh, so um, uh, anyway, he was the first person to really shape preaching. He inspired to take preaching seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, he is the one that really inspired to say, if you're going to preach, then be serious about preaching. He preached with a full manuscript. And he worked on that manuscript all week. And I know that because I know his children and I know his daughter who used to type out his handwritten notes and have them prepared for him to preach on Sunday mornings. Wow. So a full manuscript. You say he wasn't necessarily educated formally, but he still right. wrote out a full manuscript for a sermon. Full manuscript for a sermon. Okay. So, so think, and he helped shape you. So think back to the shaping you had at 16, which of those did you keep when here you are not 16 anymore? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I kept was his uh, <clears throat> deep commitment to the scripture. Mm -hmm. I, I think about that now. Here's a man who never attended college or seminary. Maybe had gone to, you know, some of the Bible school in town, but no formal training. And yet he sensed the need to write a sermon a full manuscript. I actually tried to still write a full manuscript. Uh, now, you know, after preaching 47 years, my full manuscript may be 3,000 words, but mm -hmm. um, I still try to write, uh, I'll say it this way, a sermon synopsis that's more than an outline, maybe just a little less than a full manuscript. And that's kind of where you are now. It's it's, right. it's more than outline, less than a full manuscript. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I mean, if you took a hundred sermons, seventy-five of them are probably full manuscripts. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So, um, literally, thousands and thousands of people have been impacted by your preaching. People kind of seek out your wisdom and preaching all around the world. Uh, when you think about a compelling sermon that causes people to want to listen, to want to learn. Uh, how do you know when you've hit the mark, so to speak, on a sermon that's compelling? What does that look like? Yeah, I think the compelling sermon for me is the one that begins with the exposition, not just of the biblical text, but the people who will be sitting in front of me. Uh, you know, Haddon Robinson used to talk about the invisible circle of people that he sat around, you know. And I actually kind of use that when I'm working at trying to communicate God's word to people. Who are the different people that are sitting in front of me? And I make that as diverse as I can because uh, though one group may be in front of me listening physically, there's another group of people that's listening to me worldwide. Mm -hmm. So I keep that in front of me. And, uh, but to be compelling is to be biblical, uh, to allow the scripture to actually shape the sermon, the movements or the points or whatever people call them, uh, but the movement of the sermon uh, to be derived out of that particular passage, whether it be a chapter, a paragraph, or even a whole book, you know, whether it's Philemon or Jude, or you preach in Philippians and you preach in a whole book, uh, uh, is to let that text shape the sermon. I, I think that when people hear that, they're still so enamored to hear what they've heard, but 
hear it in a language that they understand it and then want to move out and do something about it. So, um, you know, in, in describing expository preaching, you know, working through letting the text set the agenda of the sermon, even set the structure of the sermon. Um, I, I guess I would say I, 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 I get exactly what you're saying, but I've heard a, heard a lot of people preach sermons that did those very things that weren't particularly compelling. Sometimes they yeah. sound like running commentary or they, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, so, so how does that kind of verse by verse exposition I mean, become compelling that something that people want to hear, want to learn from? Yeah, I, I think that it becomes compelling when you can take the world of the then and bring it to the world of the now. Well, you move from thenness to nowness. And so in that nowness, they find themselves in that story. It's no longer a story that's 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years in the past. But now they're saying that they, this is my story. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's Abraham saying, and you describe Abraham and Jehovah Jireh. And, and then you move from Abraham and say, most of us would never be Abraham, uh, no physical realm, and yet God provides for you the things that you really, really need. Uh, I, I think that when they discover that I'm in this story, this is not just a story about Abraham, but this is my story. As the hymn says, this is my song. Uh, I believe that's when it becomes compelling. I yeah. believe that's the moment that they say God is speaking to me now. And, and that might be the most compelling part, is to believe that this God really speaks to me in my situation in the here and the right now. What, uh, what preachers um, have impacted, you know, past or present, have inspired, influenced, impacted you as a preacher and a communicator? I thought about that in categories. So I would say pastorally, my pastors who have done that, Pastor O.C. Johnson and uh, Pastor A. Lewis Patterson, both who uh, folded up that have folded up that tents and moved upstairs. But uh, Pastor Johnson inspires in me, take preaching serious, be committed to the calling of God. Pastor Patterson, on the other hand, inspires in me, be an expositor. That would be his favorite line. Uh, be an expositor. I can hear it in my head right now, him saying, it's right here in the text. Hmm. And then when I would go off to school, it would be my first homiletic professors. One would be John D. Mangum. And John D. Mangum was a high intellectual, uh, a Yale man, a PhD from Pacific, his uh, emphasis would be, you know, he was a theologian. Theology was his uh, discipline. And uh, he would be the one that would challenge me to think critically through a biblical text, to hear that scripture, think through it, read it. What did it mean? What does it mean to us now? But then Harry Wright would be the one who was the dean of the chapel. And he was so stylish in preaching, to use the term of the rhetors. He had a real style. And it was, it was not just um, narrative, but he knew how to illustrate a sermon. It was actually at 18, 19, 20, 21, uh, that he's the one that shaped those personal illustrations. Uh, he talks about when he goes to Morehouse College and how Miss T, 
and he had ways of uh, shaping these names in the sermon. When you start talking about compelling, he starts using names instead of calling her by her full name. He said, Mrs. T. And then how she would uh, prepare in a shoebox chicken and biscuits and put it in his uh, possession so he could take it to school. And then going back to the provision uh, illustration, God is providing for you on your journey, things like that, you know. And then um, in seminary, uh, the person that really, really shaped my preaching on the authorial intent of the biblical text would be Al Faisal. Uh, Al is in his 80s now, and I, he still keeps up with me, and he uh, critiques me regularly. <laughs> he lets me know <laughs> when I'm derailing the sermon, you know, <laughs> but, it, but he was the one that really fastened me to say that, that the biblical text has an authorial intent, and this goes back to compelling. I think that when that sermon, um, the, the, the authorial intent of that text is being heard in the hearer. It compels that person. And as he would go on to talk about the main objective of the sermon, is it evangelical? Is it supportive? Is it doctrinal? And so the, I think that when we match that text to what the intent of the text is supposed to be, that too becomes one of the compelling things. And then later on, uh, in my doctoral studies, it would be people like Henry Mitchell and Robert Smith, uh, Calvin Miller, uh, Calvin, uh, who shaped expositional narrative in me. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and then James Earl Massey, who oh, was yes. just, yeah, just a toast. So, so if, if preaching is, if there's any preaching I've done, just when you listen to the name of the people who have shaped you yeah. uh, academically and homiletically, you say, well, I'm understanding a little different, you know, better now. No, oh, totally. You preach the way that you preach. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, you have a fascinating mix though of um, black church yeah. and, you know, I guess they black and white church just for the sake yeah. of this conversation. Yeah. Um, and in, in ways that most pastors are sort of shaped by a tradition. You've been, you've bridged those traditions. What, yes. what, what has been the benefits of that? And I'll talk some about what are the challenges of some of that? Yeah, I, I think the benefit of it has been that it gives me a broader perspective when it comes to approaching not just a text, but, but style in the sermon. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and it furnishes me with what I need when I'm in different environments to preach, whether it's in the chapel or the seminary or just at the at the church bill jones used to say that good preaching uh good preaching and good preachers are at home in the universe and so uh, i think that uh, the shaping of those different people helped me be at home at the universe that you could be highly intellectual and at the same time shaping in a way where uh the common person can hear that gladly, you know, that's a line of Jesus and the common people heard him gladly, you know. Mm. And so, uh, so the, the challenges of that is sometimes that when people hear you, uh, you might be criticized on one hand and not being Afrocentric enough. And then on the other hand, where you're saying, well, you're too European, you, you see, mm. but, um, I take both of them and I blend them together, the best of both worlds. Mm. and allow that to shape my preaching. I want to be heard as a preacher. 
Yeah. And, uh, I want, and I want people to hear God's message through the vessel that he's called to uh, blow that trumpet. I want to do yeah. that. You think about great jazz artists, you know, after a while you start worrying, you don't worry about Coltrane, whether he black or Stan Getz, whether he white, you just sit down and say, they can play music. <laughs> and that's what I want to do and preach it. Come on, <laughs> come preach on. Music, you know. <laughs> All right, talk to me about Bishop College because something yeah. is going on. There, you mentioned there's a, what'd you say, a crop of you that yeah. came out of that in the 70s. You know, James Meeks is a, is a close friend here in yeah. Chicago land. I'm, I'm actually preaching for him in, uh, in December. Um, and okay. you know, he's, he's, uh, just finished yeah. up his master's degree with us. I mean, what yeah. continue with seeking that learning, yeah. uh, but he's a Bishop. I mean, and there's some of you just came out of there and it's like this preacher, I don't know, machine is, yeah. is there, what, what was the crop? What was going on there? Yeah, that, that's interesting. From the first day that you arrive, uh, preaching becomes those who are in the religion department, um, student and professor both immediately began shaping a love for preaching. You know, Cleo LaRue talks about one of the ways that preachers learn to preach is that they listen to good preaching. And at Carpe Collins Chapel on Friday, which was when the community gathered to worship, from 11 to 11.50, it was one of the most classically uh, shaped worship experiences from the beginning to the end. Um, J. Harrison Wilson was the organist and the uh, teacher of music there. And his opening line on fr fr Friday morning as we would walk up to the chapel, the choir would sing, hush, hush, my soul be calm and still, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and enter in. And from that moment, I can see Dr. Wright standing up and calling us to worship. So you had this great music and then you had great preaching. Um, he invited the best of the best preachers. And that's the beginning, I think, of the formation of preaching for the people, men and women who were students at Bishop College, uh, that we heard the best preaching. We heard Scholars preach, PhDs, DMs, MDivs, and no degree at all. Yeah, uh, and they and they shape that in that. So that was the, one of the shapings. And then the other one was we we were curious enough that we wanted to try to imitate what we were hearing. And so when we would hear each other at Mount Tabor Missionary Baptist Church, was which was adjacent to the school. Floyd Harris, who was my pastor in college, and I mean, uh, just a blessed memory. He had three services in the 70s, and he would allow at 8 a.m. and the 7 o'clock p.m. service a Bishop College preacher to preach. Oh, wow. For four years, you rotated in preaching. And so you would preach there maybe, I don't know, four, eight times out of the year or rather uh, uh, over your years there, there was so many of us at the time. And so we would hear each other and then we would literally challenge each other on preaching, developing ideas, using language properly, mm -hmm. um, not getting so excited that you move away too 
quickly before you finish evolving the sermon. And then the professors would be there sometimes and they would sit down and they would make that critique and uh, make comments and suggestions how to make the sermon better, how to polish the sermon or how to furnish the sermon. So um, it, it was it was four years of intentionally focusing in on preaching. And then in those days in Dallas, you had the churches and they would invite different right. people and we'll go visit there. So it was four years of theory and practice. Yeah. And I think that had a lot to do uh, with the shaping of preaching. Yeah, I did a focus group with uh, academics recently, uh, preaching professors and communication professors. And uh, they talked about the kind of environment that you just talked about, that facility. Yeah. It wasn't just the classroom experience, yeah. but it was a community that cared about preaching. And and I know people are going to want to go to Bishop now, but it's it it, it closed. It, it's, uh, it was HBCU right. and yeah. closed, I think, in the late 80s. That's um, right. But produced this, this, this crop. And we hear those kinds of places where people sort of, do what the writer of Hebrews says, they provoke one another to love and good deeds. Yeah. In this case, it was towards that preaching. But that was in HBCU, is African-American tradition. Yeah. What aspects of that tradition are particularly important for you to keep alive in your preaching? Yeah, I, I think the uh, the narrative, the rhetoric, uh, the, 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 the I, I like to say the rhythm of preaching, finding that note and tone of preaching, uh, the cadence, of it, you know. Again, as the rhetors talk about the style, what kind of style you're going to use. Uh, for those that used manuscripts, you had actually, there were actual images of, of, of preachers who used manuscripts that taught without teaching a class on how to read a manuscript, how mm -hmm. to just fluidly move through a manuscript, you know. So I think language would be one of rhetoric and storytelling would be that, but also that deep commitment to scripture, uh, the Bible. And when I speak of the Bible, I'm not just speaking of written text, but, but, but the living word of how God broke into history in Jesus Christ to come and say, and the world can be a better place through you. Uh, I don't wanna lose that in preaching. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to always, and, and I think the last thing uh, of talking about Black preaching is to believe that God is getting ready to do something. Mm -hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't ever want to lose that. I want to believe that on Sunday morning, uh, when the Bible is open and the scripture is read and the people hear it, that they believe I'm getting ready to hear more than just something that's going to inform me, but something that is going to inspire me to live better, be better, do better and to do justice in the world and to make that which is broken whole again. Mm. And uh, so those are the aspects that I don't want to lose. Uh, Love it. Preaching. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about your preparation process. You've told us a little bit that it's often manuscripted or mostly manuscripted. No. Uh, what do you do? Uh, where do you go? Um, how long does it take? Those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, I wrote an article for uh, Power in the Pulpit some years ago. <laughs> and I always laugh about this. I tell this to Cleo LaRue. He was the one that edited it. I said, uh, I don't think I do much of anything that I suggested back then. I had something ready for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I would say to those that are listening, 
that you need to come up with some kind of method of preparation to protect your time as a pastor that nobody interferes with that time. That is a time for your preparation. Now, 47 years later, I've done quite a bit of reading, uh, studying, memorizing. And so um, the, the, the length, or should I say the time of preparation may be reduced in some ways because I don't have to start from scratch right. every time I preach from a book. But I still begin with a careful reading of the biblical text, whether it's Old or New Testament. Uh, I try to dig through still, reading through the Greek New Testament, uh, I stumble through the biblical Hebraica, trying to find those nuances just to hear the scripture. And then just to read through the scriptures in a good English translation, just read it, just hear it. And now, I'm, now that I'm hearing the scripture, I start moving immediately. And that is, I'm looking for two or three or four things immediately out of my reading. Once I've read it and reread it and read it, maybe making a note here or there, I'll say, uh, what is the central idea of this text? You know, why did the writer write what the writer wrote? And uh, I'm trying to dig down into that. And then once I get the idea, the central idea for that text, the next thing I want to do is write a thesis statement. I still believe in writing out a thesis statement or the sermon in a sentence to nail it down and try to put it in a language that's easy to remember and in a language that the people understand. And uh, in preaching, though I preach extemporaneously, um, I tried then to use voice inflection in a way that people know that when I get to that, then I'm saying something that's important. Mm -hmm. And then I, at that same time, just in the preliminary work, when I get the central idea of the text, the thesis, I want to know what the main objective of the sermon is going to be. And that is, um, is it, you know, is it evangelistic? Is it uh, stewardship? Is it doctrinal? Is it, uh, uh, I'm promoting something. I want to do that. And then, and then, uh, or should I say the main objective of the text? And then the main objective of the sermon, I want to write down, maybe in a paragraph to say, this is what I want this sermon to accomplish. Um, I want this sermon, uh, let's say I'm preaching through um, Ezekiel 37 pops in my head, and I want to sit down and say, um, Israel was, you know, in the past tense, you know, separated and broken from God because of this and that. But then I want to, in my thesis says, there is hope for you in God to be restored, something like that. Right. So this is going to be an encouraging sermon. That's going to be the main objective of my text is going to be to encourage people to return to God for the purpose of uh, restoration. Yeah. And then, but what I want this sermon to do, you know, uh, are the, uh, are the main, again, the main objective text, you know, encourage, but uh, consecrate. I want to now say when the people walk out the door, this is I want them to do. You know, you're broken without God, separated and dried and hopeless. But when we hear God's word, empowered by God's spirit, then we, we come, you know, we come back together. 
Now I need to shape this thing in some kind of way. And so uh, I'm looking now immediately for the movements of the sermon. I'm just saying, how is this sermon going to move? You know, uh, you know, you know, sit down and say something like word without spirit is this, you know, and then spirit without word is that. And then end it by saying we need word and spirit to come alive together, you know, word and spirit. So now how I'm going to introduce this, how I'm going to conclude it. I'm actually doing all of this on day one. Now, you know, you know 25, 30 years ago, that, that I wouldn't get to that until Wednesday or Thursday. I'm trying to start on day one working on that sermon. And then I want to spend some time, uh, and this is probably the next day, I want to spend some time hearing what the exegetes have to say about this. I want to make sure that my, my homiletical hunches are lined up with theology, history, church history, you know. And then I start discovering, oh, wait a minute. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm digging through and I'm trying to deal with some very reverent uh, scholars <laughs> and, uh, and say, wait, you, you got something twisted here. And now, now I got an argument going on somewhere, you know, to say, <laughs> because now it looks like, oh, so it's challenging me on what I've been hearing all this time. And now this is giving me a chance to have a good argument in this, in this text. And one of the things I always enjoy is saying, uh, for years, I've always looked at this passage this way, but after deeper study and reflection, you know, I noticed this and this is happening. And it always does, it's always, it's always at that moment where people lean forward, they hear it, because one, they can't believe that the pastor actually doesn't know everything. He actually mm -hmm. learned something himself in the preparation, you know. This goes back to impact, engage, how people listen. And so I'm, I'm trying to do that kind of work. And now um, I need to get some time where I can start trying to put some meat to the bones, you know. Uh, wind blow, you know, <laughs> put some meat on his blow. And at that point, I'm trying to shape it sermonically. You know, how, how do you preach this to the people where it's not sounding like just a Bible study outline? And how do you start moving away from just your movements or your present indicative statements about the passage? Then some explanation of that passage, which, by the way, becomes how each sermon is shaped. If, it's, if it has three movements, it has a, a statement of purpose or a proposition or a movement underneath that is a brief explanation of that passage. And then I'll move after that and look for and hunt for some illustration to really highlight what I'm saying so that the people can take it away. But here's the big move for me. How do you apply? What is the application? What do you apply? And far as I'm concerned, in my preaching, that's the hardest move of the sermon. Mm. Many times you can have a great uh, statement of purpose, movement, proposition, present and active, uh, uh, active indicative statement. You can explain the text, illustrate it, and we'll just move right on to the next one. But to sit down and say, now, now how do you apply this to your life? You know, uh, you're sitting here and saying, you know, uh, Hearing the word, you know, hear the word, you know, and you talk about the word, but you sit down and say, but hearing the word without God's spirit, 
uh, leave, you know, it may, it, it may make you whatever, you know, I can't remember. Right. But, uh, but you get that. And then the next thing you sit down and you say, but spirit without word, you know. So yeah. the whole idea is some people all word and no spirit. Some people right. all spirit and no word. God is calling us to come alive by word and spirit coming together. And when you, I mean, I've seen you preach and it is a thing to behold. Um, you sort of begin to work through some of those phrases and you repeat those yeah. phrases and, yeah. and you're obviously, you know, they're strategically connected one with another. You're working hard to make sure yeah. that the wording is just right. Um, has that all, cause you're not looking down when you do that. Is that all written out for you to do? And you just committed enough to memory. You can walk through it. How does that work? Yeah. I, normally once I've written it, you know, I, I, once I've written it, it's kind of in my head. Okay. And uh, so if I, if I could go back, and grab that sermon. I could read through it one time, reflect through it, and it's back in my head, things like that. Uh, so I try to, and, and the reason why I do it is because I'm a much better uh, extemporaneous communicator than I am reading of a manuscript. Okay. I've been times where I've written out the manuscript and I haven't had time to ingest it. And I, and, and I may try to use the manuscript it just doesn't work very well for me. I'm six five, looking down. I'm looking for something, but normally <laughs> when it's in my head, it's just in my head, and so I can hear those phrases while I'm standing up preaching, and I, and that's a great observation, Ed, because I do. I work really hard at trying to make sure that the people who are listening don't miss that connection. So I might repeat it, rephrase it, restate it, come back so they can really get it and then move on uh, to the next uh, part of the sermon. Because I really want them to get that, you know, but that's yeah, kind of where I walk through it. Yeah, I'm struck by the level of intentionality that seems spontaneous. But since I watched you more than once, yeah. it's not spontaneous, but it seems spontaneous, but it's it's very clear a plan. You're you're coming back to, you're saying three, one maybe similar thing, different ways, using key phrases you want them to take away. Yeah. And so if I look down at your notes at that time, what would they look like? Uh, they, they, would, they would look like a, a, a written out page. It, written, it, whole written out page. Okay. Written Even out. when you start to build those phrases, are they, yes. are they yes. bolded? No, you just no, no those, 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 those start shaping in me while I'm preaching. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A lot of those shape you're, you're the second person to ask me about that, that that they actually at that point i have it written down and then when i'm up there's something else that's being created while i'm preaching to uh the congregation that it's that it's now emerging a certain kind of way that i see in the face of people and i look at some young person there and I want to make sure that they get what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Come back to that. So, so how um how long does you went through like the days of the week? How long does that take for a typical sermon? How many hours? I would say now I, I probably spend maybe twelve hours, fifteen okay. hours. You About know, fifteen I hours. Still, yeah, you know, I, I map it out. And, and one of the, one of my strengths of uh, preaching. Uh, I think is a strength is that I try to plan far ahead. Right. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm really big on plan preaching. Um, that keeps me from wondering uh, if I don't know where I'm going week to week 
uh, it, it could be a disaster. Now, periodically, you know, something comes up where it shapes, reshapes where you're going. I can come back to it. But 95% of the time, you know, if you say, for instance, uh, in the fall, what are you preaching on? I'm, I'm doing a series on discipleship, the teacher and the student. That's how I want to call it, the yeah. teacher and the student. Um, and then for, for Christmas this year, I'm still hung out on that. 47 years of preaching Christmas sermons, you start wondering, what do you say this year? Yeah. <laughs> you know, things like that. But most of the time, I'm, I'm planned out uh, 13 weeks for the most part, uh, 13 weeks, no more than 16. I rarely, I rarely go that far as you lit 13 about 13, 14 weeks. That's like three months at a time. Yeah. And then something else uh, comes up. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. So I've, I've, um, I've read where you believe and have said there's a strong co- correlation between effective preaching and the relational connection between the pastor and the congregation. I've got a couple of questions that flow out of that, but mm-hmm. expound on that uh, just a little bit. You've, you've, you've mentioned it once, hinted at it a second time. What's the correlation? How does that work? Yeah. Uh, I, I've read once where, uh, you know, Fosdick uh, talked about, you know, preaching on group level, that kind of counseling on group level. But, uh, but he said when he would walk through the halls of the church, he would overhear people say things and it would kind of feed uh, his imagination and preach. For me, uh, I started looking at the week of what's going on. Um, just events like today, I, I received five a six text about people who have um, lost a loved one, mother died, this person's mother died, this person's brother died, this person's husband died. And so I, I'm, that, that's in me as a pastor. Um, and, and then I think about other the kids going back to school and then in light of what happened to Uvalde, uh, all of that's working in me is developing because uh, I can't talk to these people one-on-one, but I know now what they're experiencing in my church. And so in our staff meetings, I would ask that sometimes, you know, Tyrone, what is going on with our young people? Or I'll say uh, to Brenda in our ministries, what are some of the big needs that are coming up? And all of this helps shape my pastoral relationship with the people that's in front of me. So I'm no longer, my exegesis is not just biblical texts, it's people in the congregation and the world that they live in. And that's what I mean by that relationship, is that when I preach, I want them to believe that when I walked out the door, I was preaching to them and not over them, around them, under them, but I was actually preaching to them. Yeah, and I've I've actually heard you mention people or things that people are doing in your sermons. So it's, it's something that you're... And you know, if, if something you're doing gets mentioned, you're like right paying attention at that point. Yeah, you like yeah. are those written out in the notes too? Is that part of the preparation no, process? No. no uh, okay, that's just looking that, around. That is spontaneous. It's okay. just uh, pastoral spontaneity. I'll look up and I may see somebody, you know, and and I remember it or, or, or I bring something to mind. It also keeps me from because sometimes in preaching, if you're not careful, you can get carried away uh, with something. And I look in the face of certain people and say, uh, you don't you don't need to say that. 
you know, you, you don't, you don't need to <laughs> Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah, you know, just, yeah, just, you know, it's been some days I've walked out and said, man, I cannot believe that you said something like that. You know, so uh, it's so insensitive and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and having that relationship with that congregation, I think, prevents me from uh, just going again off the rail and saying just ancillary things that's unrelated to everything that's going on. Yeah, yeah that's good. How do you um, consider or and, and or include, maybe you don't, um, people who are not yet Christians, who are there, maybe watching online now, but but maybe they're there. Do you plan in some ways for the message to engage them? I'm not so sure they're going to be as concerned about what the people of Israel are experiencing in Ezekiel. Right. So how does that work? Right. right. I do. Most of the time, I don't write it, but I really do consider it. Okay. I'm always considering that somebody has brought somebody with them today. Mm. And the only reason why they came is because they're just satisfying a request that somebody made. Mm. And so uh, I, I may just say, I may uh, say, and some of you today are here because someone invited you. You really didn't want to be here but you wanted to satisfy the request to show them that you would support them, but you had no idea that today you would get here and say, I'm glad I came because God is speaking to me. You don't even believe in God. In fact, you have real reasons to doubt him. Mm. Or to say that I can't believe that you people would sit here and listen to this. And yet today you're saying, I'm listening to it. At that point, I've, I've had every week uh, in the past, can't do it much now, but somebody would walk up to me and uh, say, uh, thank you for the day. I'm, I'm not a Christian, uh, but the day I really sensed something happened to me, uh, I heard something. And I know at that point that seed is about to break into some good soil. And I really believe that, you know, I, I, I preach with that intention every week. That this that that this bread cast on the water would not come back void. I believe that. If I don't believe that, I don't think I need to stand up and preach. I really truly believe that, and I enjoy preaching to that group. I really like preaching to intellectuals, uh, just curious seekers, people asking questions. And sometimes, you know, I'll just sit down and and just in the middle of a sermon, just answer one of those questions if it just pops up to me you say well what does this mean you know why do you believe in this and and then i'll just sit down and say I be we believe in it because of and go down the list and i really believe that people have made decisions to follow christ maybe not that day but next week month year where they heard that and said i heard this in a sermon one day didn't want to be that didn't want to hear one of my favorite stories to tell about that is Johnny Taylor. Johnny died two years ago uh, at the beginning of COVID. I don't think it wasn't COVID related, but, and he was one of my favorite people in the church. He came to know the Lord at age 54. He had never been in church, no interest of going to church. He was an organic intellectual from Ohio and, um, grew up in integrated communities, uh, went to integrated schools up north, that kind of thing. And he was an officer in the United States Marine Corps. He was dating a lady in my church 
and he was a, a member of the nation of Islam. And um, he just said, one of those people, I'll go to church because you asked me to attend. And he did. And so he said, hopefully I'll get a chance to meet this guy. That's how he tells the story and said, maybe we can engage uh, in a conversation. Well, he comes to church one week, the next week, the third week, he comes down the aisle, never been in a church other than those two weeks before with tears in his eyes. And he said to me later, I have no idea what I'm doing down here. Hmm. And so uh, he said to me in our private talk, he said, I don't have a problem with God, but I got a real problem with Jesus. Because remember, he's nation of Islam. He's been shaped all his life to believe of Jesus in a particular way. But he joins the church. He's working in St. Croix. His girlfriend at that time is sending him the sermons. I did a sermon on the church on the cutting edge <laughs> from when the ax head falls in the water. I'm really <laughs> preaching about the church. I'm just preaching about the church, reclaiming its purpose. That's all I'm, he calls me from St. Croix and says, I've made a decision to trust Christ. Mm. Man, it was moving. It was moving. When he told his testimony, it, it was moving. In fact, I tried to get everybody that was looking for anybody on a mandate, just invite him and let him tell his story. Nothing else, just that. Wow. He became the lead. I discipled him for two years. He became the leading disciple maker in our church for men. And I mean, he discipled. Again, remember, he's an old Marine, Nation of Islam. So when you saw him, you knew if you if he just walked in, you say, I don't know who this guy is, but this guy's disciplined. He was disciplined. All, all of what a Marine looks like, he was that. He brought that same discipline as a soul winner and a disciple of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that when we are faithful to the gospel, that that gospel still works in changing the heart and life of men. I mean, I can go on with stories about Johnny because he really shared <laughs> some great light on some things, you know, and you would have thought, that with his background in the nation of Islam, he would just be anti a lot of things. When the Lord converted him, he was converted. If it's anybody that I know that is waiting on me in glory, I know Johnny is, man. He, you know, and so the gospel works. And I preach believing that people will hear the gospel and respond to it in a positive way. Maybe not on that third week, maybe three months, a year later. I don't believe that good seed falls and that it uh, doesn't find good soil. It will find good soil. Mm. Fascinating conversation. Ralph Douglas West, very thankful for you taking the time and thankful for your influence you. on my life and the life of so many others. Look forward to seeing you. Thank you for including me, man. I really enjoyed today. You've been hearing from Dr. Ralph Douglas West. Thanks again for listening to the Sessor Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments to leave us a review that'll help our ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. 
You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.